Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Amen. Well, we're in our summer series. We took a break from Luke, Luke's wonderful gospel, a number of months ago, and been doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that. We looked at Genesis. We uh, asked the question, what does the Bible have to say about dinosaurs and cavemen, and what about days and ages and all that kind of thing? And if you missed that or you were on vacation, you missed it. But we do have the CDs, and someday it will be put on the net, and the web you'll be able to, uh, to get that today. Want to look? Take your Bible. Look at James chapter two. We're going to talk about the faith that does not save. Did you know that there's a faith that does not save? Now that's not my dear wife. I'm not talking about faith here today. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And uh, she reminded me of that years and years ago. Not really, but I love to say that. And she says, "Oh, don't say that." But I said, "So much fun to say that." I love to say that. Without faith, it's true for me, right? You see me the wrong person, say, hey, without faith, it's impossible to plead. There you go. I like that. The faith that does not save. Did you, did you ever buy something only to get home and discover it was defective? Isn't that so much fun? Right? Isn't it? De- defective stuff? Man, it's not supposed to go bad so quickly, and it does. Well, it's one thing to have a defective hip. If that's your situation, probably not, but it uh, comes close to home to me. It's another thing to have a defective light bulb or power tool. How about a lemon of a car? You ever buy a lemon? I don't mean a lemon, but a car that turned out to be a lemon. So, oh, my word. Oh, my. Oh, boy. Well, that's one thing, but it's quite another thing altogether. If you have the kind of faith that James is talking about here in our text, that is utterly defective, right? This is the single most important issue in all of life. And, uh, man, you want to get this right. There there are not many uh, adages that I live by, but here's one of them, okay? Don't blow the big things. We We all make mistakes. We all do things, right? Don't blow the big things. There are big things in life. Don't, don't blow it. Your faith is the biggest of all things. I meet people all the time, and they find out I'm a pastor. It's amazing how many are Christian. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I am a Christian. I'm a Christian. Some aren't, but a lot of them are. And I often wonder, well, the Lord knows those that are His. And I hope they truly are. But then I hear the words of the Lord Jesus, wide and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many are on that path. And, and the Lord's saying, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, that's, these are Jesus' words, Matthew said, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. I go like, I hope that they have, I hope that you have the faith that's genuine, this faith that saves. And it's not the defective kind. Oh my, don't blow the big things. Don't blow the big things. Well, Pastor James, who wrote uh, the epistle of James that we're looking at, just give you just an ounce of background on it. You, you should know that he's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. 
that is uh, that Mary and Joseph had a number of children after the uh, wonderful virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. They're the natural offspring of Joseph and Mary. And uh, James is probably right under him in the birth order. I say that because his name always appears first in the listing of the names of uh, Jesus' half-brothers and sisters. He uh, was not saved when, uh, uh, be, before Calvary. Uh, he was the recipient of a post-resurrectional visit. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that Jesus uh, visited in his resurrected body uh, his brother James, and James was saved at that point. Uh, it's, uh, it's amazing. If you know something about siblings, I had the joy of seeing four of mine this week, you know, this and that, and trading stories, and laughter, and remember this, remember when you were punished, and remember dad, and remember that. We laughed and laughed and howled and howled. And uh, my mother told me yesterday home, my kids are absolutely perfect. Oh, my. And we all said, oh, mother, no, 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 no. We're sort of like you, you know. <laughs> And the, inter, and the interchange of uh, a family. Well, Jesus and J James were half-brothers. And uh, James uh, writes this book, and it's, from what we can tell, if it's not the oldest, it's the second oldest writing, the earliest writing of the New Testament church, probably written around 45 A.D. And uh, he is the pastor of the first church. Isn't it funny how some churches in days gone by, not so we don't see it today, but how about, how'd you like to be about the, we're the ninth Presbyterian of the second church in the third city, or the third Baptist church in the this and that? We go like, that's a strange way to think about church planning, or the first Presbyterian, first Baptist, first, whatever, right? He was, James was the first pastor of the first church in, can we say, the first city, Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? We know that from Acts 15. He conducted there the, the Jerusalem Council trying to figure out what do we do with the Jews and the Gentiles and the Gentiles that now know Christ, do they have to become Jewish? And what about the law and all that? It's James who's the pillar of the church. That's the one and the same. So that's who's writing this. And you should know that in short order in Acts, there was persecution that took place there in Jerusalem, and the church scattered, all except the apostles. They scattered all over the known world at that point. And so James, feeling the need and uh, the, uh, the heart of a pastor, and Faithy and I know what that is, so yearning to flock and to care for. When you're not here, I worry about you. I tell you that. We worry about you. I never take attendance, but I look out, and I can tell you who was here and who's not when I go home. And I worry. I wonder if they were hit by a bus. Are they sick? Are they in bed? Are they out of town? Are they doing something they ought not to be doing? Are they snared? You know, Satan does that. He walks around like a roaring lion. You, you know, you need to be here. You need to be here to encourage each other. This is the Thanksgiving dinner. We feed the Word of God. You skip too many me uh, meals. You, you get uh, anorexic in your soul, and you'll wander away from the truth. And he's worried about, he's wondering about his church. Now scattered, and he writes... This letter to them, an epistle, is a letter. He writes that to his church now scattered, and uh, often it's called street-level Christianity. I mean, it's down on the street. There's, he's not high and lofty like Paul. What's Paul mean by that? Got to study it. Paul just says it the way, or James says it the way it is, street-level, right there from the gut, right? 
And yet he's like a good pastor. There's 108 verses in it and uh, 50-some imperatives. He's directive. He's like a good mother hen. You ever see a mother with a bunch of kids? Good mother directing at my, my dear daughter's like that. She's right on top of them. They get away a little bit, but boy, she pulls it, snaps it right back. James is like that, caring for, lovingly caring for his people, now scattered, and 108 verses. Every other verse has a command. He's like this, doing that. And we're going to come in chapter 2. We'll look at the end of chapter 2 next week. But uh, here he is going to talk about the all-important issue of the faith that fails to save. He wants to make sure that they got the real deal and that they're not a part of visibly the, the, the people of God and yet die and find themselves in hell. What a horrible thing that would be, wouldn't it? To be a member of church, baptized, all those things, right? And to be lost. And believe me, it happens. It happens. If the Lord Jesus were to come tonight or today and we'd be caught up to meet him in the air, First Thessalonians 4 as a pastor, I'd be looking for all your noses. Where is everybody here? And what a terrifying thought that is to me, that you should miss the grace of God. I don't want any of you to, and any of your loved ones, and any of those. And so that's what James is dealing with here as the shepherd, and he wants them to be saved. And so we need to know that there is a faith that does not save. And he tells us here that, that, he tells us that faith alone saves, but a faith that is alone, does not save. All important. Martin Luther uh, wrote, there's a faith that does not save. Man is justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. He's exactly right. We only have a few minutes, but we're going to develop this quickly. There are three reasons he gives us in, in, in chapter 2, verses 14 to 19, three reasons why you must know that the faith without works is defective. Three reasons. Let's, let's read the text. And, you know, I should say, I, rem I was reminded this morning, when I was uh, a 10th grader in high school, um, they were doing something in our church, and, <laughs> and our Sunday school teacher, Mr. Gibbs, looked around and said, hey, we need to do something. And it was sort of on the way out, and he looked at me and said, hey, I want you to read Scripture this morning. We're kind of doing something and honoring the children's and Sunday school, and I know you guys are in high school. I think it must have been ninth or 10th, so I... He said, hey, Terry, you go up there and read a text. So I, I've been reading this text and didn't understand it. Thankfully, I understand a lot better today, but this is the text. This is the very text I read there how many years ago? 1969 or 68 or something like that, standing with four or 550 people and my mouth caught and dry, and, but the Lord helped me to spit it out. And here's the same text, James chapter 2, verse 14 to 19. James writes, what good is it, my brothers, he's writing to Christians, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food, and if one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there's one God. Well, that's good. Even the demons believe that. 
and they shudder. Well, in these few verses, there are three reasons why you must know that faith without works is dead. It's real simple. Look at the outline, Roman number one. This kind of faith does not provide salvation for the possessor of it. It doesn't benefit the person. It doesn't benefit you if you have this kind of faith. That's what he said in verse 14. Uh, Can such a faith save him? It's rhetorical. Well, James asks the question of what use or what profit is this kind of faith? And the expected answer is it's uh, worthless, absolutely worthless, useless, no profit. B, and a situation is envisioned in which someone claims, here claiming to have genuine saving faith. I'm saved. I walked an aisle. I signed the card. I prayed with my mama on the swing when I was five. I was, I'm, a, I'm the superintendent of Sunday school. I'm Benedict. I have all these things, right? I'm saved. I'm, or that kind of thing. He envisions. He supposes it in, uh, in his text in verse 14, right? This person, and he's not trying to deceive anybody. He isn't. He really, she really thinks that I'm, I'm the real, I've got the real McCoy. I'm genuinely saved, sincere to the last degree. Yet, he or she does not display any works that ought to accompany genuine salvation. That's the problem. You see, this is the appropriate conduct that should flow out of a genuine heart. First, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All the old is past. Behold, all things are new. Listen, if you are saved, the, the Spirit of Christ lives in you. You can't help but be a different person. Now, it's a long process. You're saved in a moment. You're justified by the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Your sin to his cross, his righteousness to you. Paul says that clearly in Romans 4 and 5. But sanctification, that's becoming like Jesus. That's being set apart. That's being made holy. Well, that's another matter. Justified in an instant, saved forever, but the long process of being made like Jesus. But if you are saved, you are different. You are. One thing's for sure, if you're different, you can't sin it up like before and enjoy it the same way. You can't do it. Because you have the Spirit of God in you. But more than that, if you had a problem with lying, and the Spirit of God is working in your life bit by bit, if you could stand aside and watch it and say, look, wow, I would have before just lied through my teeth on that one. But I'm going to tell the truth. And you sense that. You may slip from here and here, and God will bring you along on that. In one area after another, after an area of your life, you have a compassion and burden for other people. You'll be generous. You'll be a giver, not a taker. The whole world is filled with many, many takers, right? You'll be a giver of time and talents. You'll find needs, and you'll snoop around and care for them. And it doesn't matter whether you get the attention. I want the applause. No, it doesn't matter. And do it, do it so folks don't know it. Then that helps sort your motives out. So that's really you're doing it to please the Lord and being generous and giving of your time, your abilities, your monies. 
You go like, wow, I'm not what I was. I'm not anything like the family I came from. Wow, I am a trophy of God's grace. To him be the glory. That's what James is talking about. Uh, And if you don't have any of that, that's the problem. I don't know what went on back there. I can't explain it. But if there's not change and development and growth and godliness so that it works its way from the heart outward in your life, you're not saved. You need Christ. You don't have the real deal. And James asks here the question, can this workless faith really save him? Again, in verse 14, the expected answer is no. It never, never will. Well, see, this is the kind of faith that's utterly useless. It's all talk and no walk. And I said that a couple of weeks ago. I put it down here for you. In case you want to memorize, your talk talks and your walk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. No matter so much what a man says, he may say, Lord, Lord. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not? They will say, Jesus said, I never knew you. Depart from me. I never knew you. It wasn't like they were saved and lost. I never knew you. But they thought they were in. Isn't that sad? It's heartbreaking, really. Make sure you have the real deal. For the false kind of faith, the faith that does not save, will not save you if that's what you possess. You are still lost and in your sin. Lost. Well, D, James is not arguing for two salvation requirements. There are some traditions in the, in the Christ, in Christian faith that, that teach that. That uh, they'll say something like faith in Christ plus works, you know, one and then the other. Faith is the midway point. You add to it works, and uh, God will save you. That's wrong from beginning to end. You're stuck in Galatians. The place of works and faith, they're not side by side. They're not equal. They ought to both be present, but uh, regeneration in the faith, faith is the fruit of salvation, trusting the Lord, and then the lifelong fruit and flowering of your life that God's Spirit does in your life. Uh, And so faith is not, number one, faith is not the halfway point with works needed to finish your salvation. James is contrasting true saving faith, which always produces works, always because it's alive with the mere claim to save that you are saved. The latter is a profession only, has no life-changing power, none whatsoever. None. It's useless. It's profitless. And those who have this are still on the broad road that leads to hell because still in sin, maybe self-deceived. Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Let's just remind ourselves of the word of the Lord uh, the word, Lord's words on, in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction. That means hell. And many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. And the gate is the Lord Jesus. It must be through Him. Wow. It's worthless. It's without profit. You know, we're in a recession, and you read in the paper, as I do even glance at the Sunday morning paper, some are wondering whether it's going to be a double-dip recession. Oh, Lord, help us. I hope not. That uh, it went down, came up, now it goes down again, and all that. 
It wasn't too many years ago when American corporations, their profit margin uh, was uh, 10%, which was historically, they tell me, uh, enormous. You know, it's amazing that a, a corporation can take in the money and pay all the salaries and all the bills for all the products and all the rest and end up with, on a dollar, uh, 10 cents. Historically, it's more 4 or 5%. You know, and even grocery stores, I wonder about that. You know, they work on it like 1 or 2 or 3 cents. You know, Julie, you could tell us more of that with Wegmans. But uh, you know, thousands and millions of dollars go through, and the profit after everything, 2 or 3 cents on a dollar. It's amazing. There's profit. We, we understand that as Americans, right? Profit. In another venue, something infinitely more important than buying your bananas at Wegmans, right, is the profitlessness of a workless faith. A workless faith is a worthless faith. Faith alone saves, but a faith that is alone does not save. And Pastor James wants us to know this so that we have the right faith that genuinely saves a barren faith really is no faith at all. The second reason, not only does faith not, this kind of faith not provide salvation, but second, verses 14 and 15, this kind of faith does not help others. 15 and 16, we discover it's utterly selfish, self-centered to the core. And I remind you, that's what you were born as, and so, were, so was I. Me, myself, and I. My toy, not too many years ago, this guy, this big, you can't have it. It's my Tonka trunk. Well, it doesn't change, does it? Unless the Spirit of God changes us. This kind of faith that does not save is utterly selfish. Let's reread again what he said, 15 and 16. Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. We might say the bare essentials, right? If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, be warm and well-fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? What good is it? It's, you see, this kind of faith is utterly selfish. A, James illustrates his point by a supposed case of great need. I mean, this one is destitute. The situation is obviously calling for compassion. Remember this story of the Good Samaritan, those that passed by on the other side. And the Samaritan, the downcast, the outcast, helped him and met his need and took care of his, this one on the side of the road, left for dead. Well, James, Pastor James, is supposing uh, a, a similar case. One is utterly destitute of the basic essentials uh, for life uh, and... Uh, uh, calling for compassion and a demonstration of love. I mean, this brother, and he's a believer uh, by the text, if one of you, right, uh, uh, needing food and clothing, I mean, he needed immediate and substantial help. The word, the Greek word is gumnoi. And it means lesser uh, needs, but in this, I really feel like uh, the word means he's destitute, utterly without you know, Mother Hubbard went to the cover. There was nothing there. It was bare. There was bare. And uh, we are our brother's keeper. Remember Cain's wicked words after he killed his brother? 
Uh, what a horrible thing, right? The first one ever born, a murder. No wonder we're in a heap of trouble, right? He said to God, am I my brother's keeper? And answering through the centuries of time is the wonderful, powerful illustration of our wonderful Lord Jesus who came as the Lamb of God and laid down his life for others. He was totally consumed for others, for the joy that was set before him. He endured the shame, and it was shame at the cross. And he cared for you and for me. Well, James is driving home his point and saying not only is this workless faith worthless to the possessor because it will never save, the point of death that will never open to the gates of heaven, but second, it's worthless in that it's utterly selfish and does not even help those that are around. It is workless. It is despicably wicked, actually. And James uh, proposes, number two, that, <clears throat> that one of his readers might respond to this need with a few pious words, right? And that's what he says here. You know, uh, some of you may say uh, to such a brother in need, you know, I wish you well, keep warm, well fed, you know, but doesn't lift a hand to help, doesn't write a check, doesn't take his jacket off, doesn't care for him doesn't make a meal, doesn't lend a shoulder, doesn't cry with them, spend time with them, pray with them. We've all been there, right? That's what he's saying. You know, uh, a platitude like that. Uh, we, we might say, uh, after offering no help at all, we might say, well, God bless you. And then you scurry off to what we, we, we're about to do on our very important schedules, Right? My agenda, my pri- I've got my to-do list, right? And we don't do anything. Don't take the time, don't care, right? God forbid. And if we have the kind of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been saved very long, and if we can do that, that ought to light up the dash of your heart. I think maybe I got the counterfeit. How can I do that? How is my heart so hard? Everything I have is, is the Lord's, and my time and my effort, my talents, that I could be so hard-hearted. Oh, God, break my heart in that. And that's what Pastor James is pushing here, them to see. I mean, it's in all of us. We could all do that. Let's, let's not look pious here. It's God's work in us that changes us and makes us like Jesus. It's amazing. Go in peace. No help. Wow. Well, B, we as true believers have a debt, and that's the way it's put in the Scripture. It's a debt that we owe other brothers in need. Romans 13, Paul talks about uh, we're we are to, to give the never-ending debt to love one another, one of the great one-another passages of the Bible. Never-ending. It's like the coupon book. You buy, so you buy a car, and you get those 36 easy ones, right? Never made an easy one. And you pull it out, and you come to the end, and yippee, let's have a party. We paid it off, right? This is like a coupon book that's infinite. You go like, I did 36, and it's done now, 36 months. You're never-ending debt to love one another. You don't come and say, well, I've done enough now. I'm retiring. Let the kids handle it. Never, ever. That's what he's saying. That's what the, and we are to bear one another's burden. John tells us, I have it on your sheet, 
The same thing in 1 John 3, 17 to 18. But whoever has this world's goods, and boy, we're wealthy by world standards, and sees his brother, it's a Christian, in need and closes his heart against him, here's John's question. How does the love of God abide in him? The answer is it doesn't. It doesn't. We're not making rocket ships here. It doesn't. Or a workless faith is a worthless faith. It's not worth a plug nickel, as they used to say. It does not save. It's utterly selfish. It's utterly selfish. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story. I love to tell it. Uh, there were two Pennsylvania hunters uh, in, the, uh, in the woods, maybe Huntington County, Larry, hunting for the big buck of their dreams, Mark's cabin or something, you know, and, uh, or Harry up north, you know. And uh, all of a sudden, they stumbled on a on Pennsylvania bear, and uh, it's coming towards them. It's got a whiff of them, you know, and maybe it's a female with the cubbies. They're ferocious. And the hunters, they see the bear coming, and they throw the gun, their guns up in the air. To me, that's kind of a stupid thing to do at that point. And they start running, and they're running, and they're running, and they're running, and the bear's coming. And the one turns to the other and says, do you really think we can outrun the bear? And the one said to the other, I don't have to. All I have to do is outrun you. You limp in your lunch. Well, that sort of speaks to the utter selfishness of our hearts, doesn't it? You know, am I my brother's keeper? Don't, don't trip, you know. And it does. And I despise that when I see it myself. And you ought to too. And we ought to ask the Lord to expunge that from our heart. Um, and if you have genuine faith in the Lord, you can't live with that. You're going to be changed. But if you can live with that, it's a telltale sign that you may have the wrong deal there and not really be saved. There's a third and last reason why uh, you must know that faith without works is defective, and that is, verses 17 and 19, this kind of faith offers no evidence, no evidence that it's even alive, none. You see, it's a profession of faith, but not a possession. And James writes in 17 through 19, he says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It's a corpse. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I'll show you my faith, but what I do. You believe that there is one God, kind of like the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. The Lord our God is one. Well, that's good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. The idea is they're not saved. That's simply a... They know it mentally. It's not saving faith. Well, A, a faith with no life-changing power is defective. It's dead. It's like the Dead Sea. Some of us have had the joy of being in the Dead Sea. We used to take some study trips over there. Maybe we'll do one again in the future. And some of you have floated on it, and you can't really swim in it. It's one-third salt. It's the lowest spot on the face of the earth. Did you know that's 1,300 feet below sea, below sea level? It's heavy oxygen, so much so, that uh, you, you, won't, you won't burn down there. The, uh, the rays that cause skin burning 
uh, can't get through the, the heavy oxygen, and so if you tan, you go right to tan, so it's great. It's great for running, too. Uh, I, had, I had a part in Kyle Brady's father's uh, uh, funeral uh, service this past Monday, and uh, I was reminded in talking to Kyle and then talking a day or two later that uh, uh, we ran along there, ran about a 10-mile run along the Dead Sea, and it was so great because with a heavy concentration of oxygen, you can run all day. You don't even get, it's the opposite of the Denver effect where it thins. Here you're 1,300 feet below. It's, the one thing about the Dead Sea is utterly dead. It is dead. It's named rightly. The Jordan River, the Sea of Galilee, is teeming with life north. Jordan River comes down and connects in the Dead Sea. But the Dead Sea is utterly dead. It's so uh, filled with salt and salinity that uh, nothing could ever grow. Nothing. And there are no outlets. It just receives, there it is, evaporates, and it's dead. That's what he's talking about. The faith that is work, workless, the faith that is defective, gives no evidence of any life whatsoever. B, this is not saving faith. It is merely giving intellectual assent, like the, the demons he mentions. They know of God. They cognitively know that God is. We see it in the life of Jesus when he approaches the demon-possessed and the demon speaks Lord Jesus, you know, and they're shaking and shivering, and they know they're under judgment, and it's coming, and all of that. But that's not the knowledge of Christ that saves. It's simply intellectual ascent. It's like knowing the facts of history, and some of you are good at history. Love to study the Civil War. Some of you down at, at Gettysburg and the reenactments and all that, and Abraham Lincoln, four square Four, four score, and four scores is meal. Four score and seven years ago, right? You know all that, right? It's uh, and so I know Jesus. He died in Easter, of course. That's what it is. And that's not saving faith. That's not saving faith. Don't miss heaven, my old pastor. Say by twelve inches, right? You know it, but you've never owned it in your heart. That twelve inches there. And uh, you, must, you must do more than simply know. You have to know about him first. But uh, you must uh, receive him as Lord and Savior. And I have under B, it's, it's knowing about salvation, but uh, this, this false faith never bows the head or the heart in repentance of sin before the Lord Jesus. Even though one may have been born in a great godly family and you have a great heritage, you walked an aisle, you sang, you played in a band, you taught Sunday school, whatever. No change, you got the, you got the wrong deal, you're lost. It's the most loving thing I can tell you, because I want you all there when I count noses. I want to make sure you're there. I'll be looking for you. If I don't find you, I don't know how it's all going to work, but I'm going to be upset and, uh, and so on. So I want you, but I got news for you, you're going to be more upset than I'm going to be upset. And your family and friends and others that you know. They're going to be more upset. For hell's a long time. Long time. Forever? I don't even know what that is, but that's what the Word tells us. Well, see, true faith will always display itself by fruit. Verse 18, if you are truly saved, there will be fruit everywhere. Everywhere. And blooming everywhere. Man, 
Have you seen those knockoff roses? Aren't they beautiful? I don't know where they came from, but I don't know if they're a recent hybrid. Beautiful flowers, bushes, those roses are beautiful. Everywhere. I look out my window. There they are across the street. That ought to be your life. You ought not have to take a magnifying glass. I know there's fruit there somewhere. I'll find it. What a terrible thing at funerals. I've been there. I've been there in the family standing around the casket. Did they make it? Did they make it? You only go to heaven or hell. That's it. Did they make it? I don't know. I remember someday he said something, she said something. Don't do that. It's agonizing for your family. Get the real deal. Live for Christ. And God will produce fruit all over your life better than those knockout roses. You'll have a sweet smell and the glory and the radiance of Christ in your life. And people will celebrate when you die. Not that you're gone, but it'll be graduation in your home. You're in heaven. And we'll miss you. But don't do that. Make sure that fruit everywhere, everywhere, True saving faith is active. It's alive. It's energetic. It's not like a corpse. It's not. James concludes his teaching uh, upon useless faith by pointing to the demons. The demons fear in verse 19. They believe in God. They know of God. But it's not that kind of knowledge of God that saves them. Wow. Well, true faith goes beyond mental agreement. Goes beyond knowing certain things. To the place of trust. Trust. Now, you're all sitting in chairs. I'm sort of standing, sort of sitting, depending at any moment on my hip. You know what? You're putting your trust in your chair. Did you know that? It's the same thing as saving faith. You're, you just kind of plotted yourself down after we sang or whatever you did there, and you didn't think about it. You just It's supporting all your weight. You're resting in that finished work of the chair to hold you up. That's what saving faith is. To understand that you're a sinner lost, that Christ died. You have to understand these things, that you are worthy and deserve hell, but that Christ has says, all who come unto me, the greatest of sinners, if you will receive me as Lord and Savior, you'll be saved. I wonder if you've ever done that. You must do that. Rest like you're sitting and resting in your chair right now in the finished work of Jesus. And own him as your own Lord and Shepherd and Savior. And he will save you forever. And the moment that that happens, you're born again and your life will change. And there will be a change and you'll feel it and sense it. You'll be drawn to the feeding of the word. You'll gather with God's people. You'll, you'll say, why? Something's going on here. I, I, I love the Lord. I love his word. I love his people. Before I made fun of them, I laughed at them. I thought they were simpletons. Oh, the Bible, and this guy. You'll be drawn to it. And you'll want to be here and sing and serve and, and help and care for those around in need and share the gospel. That's the effect of God's Word in your life and mine. Well, lessons for a life, and we'll be done. Number one, look at these lessons. Many who say, I know Christ, have a defective faith. That's my, my perspective on it. And they're lost in sin. I, I hope that's not true. I hope I'm wrong. But I just sense when you don't see fruit and people seem so indifferent to the things of Christ or to the Word or God's people or to His church and trying to do, run their own race and build their own monuments of their lives and could almost give no thought, not even a secondary thought, 
to the wonder of eternity and the brevity of life and, and to, to serve Jesus with their life and ability. What can, what, can you, what, can you, what can you guess? Are they saved? Is it genuine faith or is it a false faith? So many, many churches uh, will, will practice even an infant baptism. And, and uh, at, at the time of, of, uh, of, of infantitude, and then kind of grow up in Christian families, and, and, but they never possess it. It's, uh, they're never saved. You see, I thought I'm in. And a couple of generations of that, you know, and, and the church is filled with unsaved people. You see, you must come to faith in Jesus Christ. Number two, second lesson for our life. Perhaps part of the problem is that we present a wrong gospel. I hear this everywhere. You know, listen, the gospel is, are you lonely and do you want a friend? Please don't do that. Aren't we all lonely at times, Right? Like, oh, yeah, I want a friend. It is true. He's a friend that's six closer than her brother. That's a result of the gospel. Don't that? And they say, well, I prayed with him and he invited the friend to be his friend. You missed it. You missed it. Please don't do that. Or how about, uh, you know, joy? Do you want joy? It is true. There's joy like nothing else. God satisfies our soul so completely and utterly when we come to Christ. That's a result of the gospel. It's true, but that isn't the essence of the gospel. You want joy? Yes, I want joy. Come pray with me. That's not it, see? And I, I, I struggle with the fact, and it's forever, and we sing about it, and ask Jesus into your heart. I can't imagine what children are thinking of with that. You know, I know we use Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door. Technically, Jesus is knocking to get into the church there. Now, it is true that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, but I just end up sometimes wondering what people are thinking. Ask Jesus. I ask Jesus in my heart. Do you mean by that, that you acknowledge that you are a sinner, lost, worthy of hell? You came to understand the love of God in Christ, that Christ died to make the payment for sin, and you bowed your heart, confessing in contrition your lostness, and you received Him as your Lord and Savior. Now, if you mean by that, I ask Jesus in my heart, then that's okay. But I often wonder, what do people mean by that? I know we're fond of talking about the simple gospel, but the gospel is not simple. It is utterly profound. It is the, the mystery and the wonder of the ages. Look at Paul. He's on bended knee in Romans 11 at the end of that. A great doxology. Oh, the wisdom of God to provide salvation. Number three. Number three. Does your life evidence real change? God's work in you will produce fruit and works. Does it? I can't measure it. You know, you know from the heart out, God knows. But if it doesn't, I wouldn't let the night pass. I'd kneel by my bed tonight. I wouldn't even wait that long. Lord Jesus, I don't know where I've been. I evidently haven't been where I ought to have been. I don't know what went on back there, but I want to make sure I receive you as my Lord and as my Savior. Thank you for dying for me. That's it. I mean, when they carry you out, like Roger mentioned, he wants to go out free at first. I told them I'll lead the way for them. The question is, were you in Christ? And all that Paul means by that. And Christos. You're either in Christ or you're not. That's it. That's it. Say, I want a third choice. There's no third choice. 
We're not at the ice cream place, you know. Number four. Number four, demonstrate your faith. Would you do this? Say, Lord, help me in this. Not to be self-centered and selfish. Demonstrate your faith. May it be Christ in you by caring for the needs of others. And especially for the, for, for the household of faith, as Paul tells us. We want to do that. It's a brother here, James is talking about, a brother. And finally, number five and last, if you're truly not saved, perhaps you are now convinced you're not saved, I would urge you, don't let the day pass. Call upon the name of the Lord. Oh, today. A workless faith is a worthless faith. It's not worth a plug nickel. You're saved by faith alone. But a faith that is alone does not save. Does not save. Come to know Christ, live for him, bloom like the most beautiful garden, and serve him. Shall we stand and be dismissed with the word for our Father?